Well, it is a couple minutes after seven. So I want to thank all of you who are here and thank you for the folks who are on Zoom. You know, Carl, what I always forget to ask you, who is on Zoom? I never know who's on. Um, there is Alex Malloy, Camille, Audia, uh, Mike Patnich, probably the doctors are with him. Okay. Sure. But uh, Richard Waring, Ken, I mean, Karen, and Vera, and Florence. Oh, wow. Well, welcome to all the folks who are on Zoom. And again, welcome to the folks who are here in person. Uh, I do want to open our time, as we always do, with a word of prayer. Just want to dedicate and commit us and commit our time to the Lord and certainly just invite him to be the one who speaks to us, be the one who teaches us, be the one who opens up the scriptures for us. Heavenly Father, as always, we just want to come into your presence thanking you. Thanking you, Lord God, for just the incredible God that you are to us and the amazing things that you have done for us. And, and now, Lord God, doing everything with us. Just, it's, it's amazing when we start to think about this. You have been existence from all eternity past. And in every way, you are glorious, omnipotent, omniscient. And now you are including us. You are including us in your eternal purposes. You are inviting us to join with you in the amazing work of redemption that you are doing in your creation. And we are just so grateful to you for that. Father, we are grateful as well for our salvation. I was reading earlier today when Jesus was uh, encouraging his disciples to rejoice that their names were written in heaven. And we thank you, Father, for each one of us who have put our trust in you, that our names have been written in heaven. And we want to rejoice in that we want to rejoice in that incredible truth that you know us and that we are called by your name that you have adopted us into your family and you now look at us as sons and daughters father we want to thank you as well for the forgiveness of our sins that makes it possible for us to draw close to you that makes it possible for us to be in your family. Thank you, Lord, that all of the sins and failures and mistakes and shortcomings that we have and had in the past, that they have all been washed clean by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for that. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for sending him freely to us and filling us with him and allowing us, Lord, to know you better through your spirit, to know your word better through your spirit, and to have the opportunity each day, Lord, to be led by your spirit. And so we thank you for that. And we pray right now that in our time together tonight, that you would lead us by your Holy Spirit. We pray that he would be the one that is speaking, that he would be the one that is teaching that it would be your voice, Father, that we hear through your spirit in all that is shared tonight. We pray for wisdom, Lord God, because it is your word. It is your scriptures that we are studying, and you alone have the right to declare what is and what isn't, what is true and what is not. And we thank you that it is your desire that we know you better, that we know your word better. And so we pray, Lord, tonight that you would help us to, to rightly understand the passages of scripture that we will look at together. So again, Father, we're just so grateful to you. We're grateful for how good you are to us, how faithful you are to us. 
how present you are with us in everything that's happening. And Jesus, it's in your name, in your name alone, that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, what I want to do in terms of our teaching discussion portion is just to open up for any concluding questions or comments about the millennium. The last couple of times that we have gotten together, we have been talking about the millennium. We've been looking a bit more carefully at Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. We have looked uh, a little bit in depth at the three dominant millennial positions, the premillennial, the postmillennial, and the amillennial. We have tried to look at some similar connected passages to help us understand Revelation 21 to 6. Um, the conclusion that I am coming to, although it isn't without some challenges, is that I think biblically the amillennial position is the one that makes the most sense. I think it's its reading of Revelation 21 to 6 is has less problems with other passages of scripture than the pre-mill or the post-mill position. But that isn't to say, of course, that the amill answers every question and resolves every issue. In particular, we talked about how there's a couple of Old Testament passages that are a little bit difficult to understand from an amill perspective. But, but generally speaking, the amill sees the millennium beginning with the first coming of Christ and sees it concluding with the return of Jesus Christ. So the binding of Satan that's described is the limiting activity of Satan with Christ coming into the world, with Christ dying on a cross, with Christ rising on the third day. That severely limited the activity of Satan in the world, specifically limited his ability to completely keep the nations deceived because now the gospel is advancing in every language, every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. So that's how the Amil would understand that, that binding of Satan. It's the coming of Christ into the world and the significant limitation that it puts on Satan and the kingdom of darkness. In terms of those who come to life, that's probably the coming to life when a person accepts Christ. Remember, that's what John, Jesus says in John chapter 5, that a day is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of Man and will come to life. And so it's one of the ways that is describing being born again or being regenerate. There are passages that talk about believers reigning with Christ, ruling with Christ, being seated with Christ in heavenly realms right now. And so that's the way the Amil would understand those second set of three verses in Revelation 20. That's verses four to six. This idea of the first resurrection, implying that there is a second resurrection. Um, we are never told explicitly what the second resurrection is, but the first resurrection possibly to be understood as being saved. And then the second resurrection is the general resurrection or bodily resurrection, which we had talked about before. And it says everyone who participates in the first resurrection, remember the second death has no power over them. And Revelation 20 later on makes it absolutely clear that the second death is eternal death, is the lake of fire, eternal separation from God. And so all of us who experienced the first resurrection, we have nothing to fear from the second death. 
And even though the first death is never explicitly mentioned in scripture, it would seem the best way to understand the first death is as the physical death or natural death. So anyways, that's just sort of a quick review, but I wanted to make sure that if there are any comments or questions about any of the millennial issues that we've looked at, that we take time to field those things before we move on um, to talking about final judgment. So are there any, in conclusion, any comments or questions that anyone has about the things we've been looking at in regard to the millennium? Hey, Dave. Um, I, I don't know if it's a question, a comment, or whatever. Um, I'm wondering, and I was trying to find it, but um, kind of where Hebrews 10, 13 fits in, um, I believe it. Hold on. I'd rather just read it. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, speaking of Jesus. Um, I don't know. That's it. So, okay. So Hebrews 10, 13, since right. that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Now, what, what, what is the comment or question? Well, that's, that's just it. Like where, where would that fit into this, this scheme of you know, his reign or, you know, the millennium or whatever? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess generally speaking, it would probably connect a lot with what we were talking about the in the beginning, the already and the not yet. Do you remember kind of when we spent some time discussing that? The, the, the nature of, of the New Testament age, the nature of this, this era that Christ has inaugurated with his first coming in, to the world is, I think, really aptly put in the two phrases already and not yet. So Satan is already limited, but he is not as limited as he will be when ultimately he is thrown into the lake of fire. You know, that's what Revelation tells us is his final destiny. So I would think, Camille, you know, looking at that verse just at, at first glance here, because it's not one that I've thought about in this regard. So I apologize if I can't give a better answer, but, but the idea of, you know, the things that are already present because Christ came, but there are still things that we are awaiting uh, to see in their fullest manifestation. So that already, that not yet. So the enemies of Christ have been significantly limited, have been dealt, you know, a significant blow, but they are still out there causing trouble. We talked about even, you know, the metaphor that, that Peter uses. You know, he compares Satan to a roaring lion that is roaming about. So that shows clearly that there still are powers and, and, and influence that the enemies of, of Christ have. So I think, yeah, the way that I would look at that is that, yeah, this is focusing on that ultimate day where all of the enemies are completely in subjection to him. You know, when Christ died on the cross and when he rose, his enemies were significantly defeated. I mean, that, that's a clear message of the New Testament. But obviously, they were not completely and utterly defeated. That is still coming, happening when 
he comes a second time. So I don't know, does that kind of help address what you were seeing in that verse or not? Uh, sure, sure. Yeah, I was just kind of, yeah, that's fine. I'm just kind of wondering, you know, how all that fits in. And yes, that, that phrase came to mind. So thank you. Yeah, of course. I mean, it was one that, again, you know, when it was presented to me, I really latched on to it because to me, it, it can go in so many different directions when you're trying to unpack New Testament theology. But that phrase already, not yet, to me, just really helps me understand so much of what I feel like, you know, the Lord is putting in front of us in, in the New Testament. We are living in an age of incredible fulfillment, but there's still greater fulfillment yet to come. So we are living in an age where the enemies of Christ have been placed as a stool beneath his feet, but not as fully as they will be when he comes a second time. So, but thank you, Camille, as always, for giving us that verse and putting those ideas in front of us. Um, so any other thoughts or questions connected to any of the millennial issues that we've, we've looked at before we press on to talk about final judgment? No? So we're ready to move on from the millennium? Excellent. Well, I don't think it quite took us a thousand years to talk about it, but it did take us a few times. So what we want to talk about next is the concept of final judgment. And it's not on the sheet in front of you, but really there's, there's three major topics that we're going to look at to conclude this study on eschatology. Final judgment, then after that, we're going to look at the theme of eternal punishment, and then we're going to look at the theme of the new heavens and the new earth, or eternal reward. So that's basically how the rest of our time in the eschatology class is going to go. We're going to look at final judgment, and we're not so much going to look at what comes on the other side of final judgment because that will be dealt with separately as it can be either way, with an E or without. Yes, I checked it once. So yeah, we can put an E in there or it doesn't have to. Actually, both spellings are correct. But thank you, Carl. So, so we won't, because obviously the consequence of final judgment is either eternal punishment or eternal reward and the new heavens and the new earth. So those are basically the final three major topics that we're going to look at in the remainder of our time together. I don't have a set time frame. I mean, it would be nice to be say that we could do each one of these last three topics in one Wednesday, and maybe that's how it will work. But I don't ever want to end up having to rush through something. So the end date is a little bit open-ended. It may be that we do this in three more Wednesdays. It may be that it takes a little bit more. It may be that we do it quicker than that, but those are the topics that we're going to cover, and then uh, with that conclude our examination of biblical eschatology. So on the sheets that you have in front of you, one is, is final judgment and one is final judgment part two. Um, and Carl, were you able to pull that up for them? Excellent. So the first, the purpose of final judgment, this is just something that was an introduction to the chapter of the book that I was reading on this, and it was just really, really helpful. The author there was basically highlighting three key components or three key purposes of final judgment. 
And he said the first is to reveal the sovereignty and the glory of God. Now, for those of us who believe in the Lord, and for those of us who have given our lives to Christ, by faith we see the sovereignty and the glory of the Lord. But to the unbelieving world, you know, their eyes are blinded, and this glory and this sovereignty is veiled to them. It is darkened to them. Well, on the day of final judgment, or at the hour of final judgment, that will be hidden no more. The full glory and the absolute sovereignty of God will be revealed to all creation. There will be no questioning who is sovereign and who is glorious. The Lord will reveal himself in his glory. The Lord will reveal himself in his sovereignty. And he will do that through, at least in part, through final judgment. A second purpose, and this is not like this is the only three, but a second key purpose in final judgment is to reveal the degrees of reward and punishment. As, 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 as followers of Jesus Christ, as students of his word, we know that there are rewards that are awaiting for those who are living their life in service to Christ, and that there is punishment that is waiting for those who choose to reject Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. But again, that is not clearly seen now. There are, of course, punishments and rewards in this life. We see that all of the time. God is absolutely actively judging a sinful world. The book of Revelation is one of the clearest biblical uh, discourses on the righteous judgment of God, the righteous punishment of, of God against a creation that's in rebellion against him. And of course, as believers, we can go over, you know, long, long lists of all of the ways that God is rewarding us and blessing us in this life. But final judgment is again the complete revealing of absolute reward and absolute punishment. A third key purpose to final judgment is to execute the, 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 the judgments of the Lord on each person. And we will see that in some of the scriptures that we look at tonight, that no one is exempt from final judgment. There's no one that gets, you know, a pass. Each one of us will stand before the throne of God and be judged in accordance with the standards that he has established. And each person will receive what is just and do them based on the criteria that God has established. So we'll get into that. So those, again, as I was just looking at this chapter, those were three general and key purposes to final judgment. So what you will see now on the remainder of this first sheet and the second sheet are just a series of topics or themes, and then either one or more passages of scripture to back up those key points. So as we work our way through the idea of final judgment, that's what we're going to do. We're just kind of going to go through some of these incredibly significant passages of scripture that inform us about final judgment. So number one on the sheet there is the judgment seat of Christ. And I want us to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. And maybe someone who's here in person 
wants to grab the microphone and, and read that out loud for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Okay, so let's just take a couple minutes to break this down. The Apostle Paul is writing believers here. He's writing the church in Corinth. And so he says, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So again, what we see here is that everyone will be judged. Now, we're going to see, obviously, there's an incredibly sharp contrast between the judgment of believers and the judgment of unbelievers, but it is unbiblical for us to think that as believers, we are exempt from final judgment. We are not. Again, Paul writing believers saying, all of us, must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the word that the Apostle Paul uses here, some of us have heard it. I don't think it's, it circulates as much. When I was younger, you oftentimes heard people talk about the Bema seat. Has anyone heard that, the Bema seat? One of my favorite Christian bands, Petra, actually had a song about the Bema seat. Well, anyways, Bema, or actually should be pronounced Bema, is the Greek word that is used here. Um, and in secular Greek, this word could mean something as general as a court. So for example, if you see this word used in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18, And it's used actually a couple of times in this passage. Acts chapter 18, verses 12, 16, and 17. NIV, in each of those verses, has a, an English word, court. And it's actually the same word that the Apostle Paul uses here in 2 Corinthians 5.10. So sometimes this means court. But oftentimes, it was literally the seat that a person who was sitting in judgment sat on. So in the trial of Jesus, there is a reference to Pilate's bima, or the seat of judgment upon which he sat as he made judgment against Jesus. So there it's, it's, it's I don't know, I guess we call it the bench today. Is that right? Where, where's Alex? Yeah, the, the bench. Is that what you call the judge, the bench? I think this is kind of where that idea comes from, is this is what the judge sits on. So it's sort of like, well, the seat of justice or the seat of judgment. And again, just for references to the seat on which Pilate sat in judgment, Matthew chapter 27, verse 19, and then John chapter 19, verse 13. There is one other place in the New Testament where this word specifically refers to the judgment seat of God, and that is Romans chapter 14, verse 10. Romans chapter 14, verse 10. So the picture here, of course, is that we all be, appear before Christ 
and Christ is sitting on the seat of judgment. So it is Christ who is going to make the final judgment against all of humanity. Now, there are places, of course, where the New Testament talks about the Father judging. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, you know, the Father makes no judgments, but he has given all judgment to the Son. But we shouldn't really sense any sort of conflict there, because obviously the Father and Son work in absolute unity and work in absolute harmony. So every judgment that Jesus makes will be a reflection, of course, of the perfect will of the Father. We see that throughout the incarnation. Jesus saying, I only speak what I hear the Father saying. I only do what I hear the Father doing. So it's absolutely appropriate for the New Testament to talk about the Father judging, but specifically the Father judges through his agent of judgment, the Son, Jesus Christ. So again, looking back now at 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, all of us must appear or must stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him. So there is, again, this idea of recompense, which is not a word that I use a lot. And it may not be a word that we're super familiar with, but the flexibility of the word recompense is appropriate because recompense can be a reward for doing something good, but it can also be a punishment for doing something bad. So recompense is kind of like, it can be a reward or it can be a punishment. And when the New Testament speaks about final judgment, sometimes it uses one or, or two words like that that can go in either a very positive direction or a very negative direction. And that's the idea that's being used here. So all of humanity is going to be recompensed. All of humanity is going to receive something from the Father through the Son at the judgment seat of Christ at final judgment. Okay? And of course, then the Apostle Paul sort of expands that and says, we are going to be recompensed for the things we did well, in the body. So the concept of final judgment puts the absolute highest glory and significance to human life. The life that God has given us. The life that we have in this body. That's the phrase that Paul uses. But, you know, sometimes we may think, you know, Life is so mundane. Life is so ordinary. There's no purpose to life. There's no value to life. You know, why am I even here? But this concept of final judgment absolutely blows that wrong way of thinking out of the water because everything that we do in this life, everything that we do in this body is going to be judged. Now, maybe for some of us, that, that's a little intimidating. And I don't think we should just be very, you know, cavalier about thinking of final judgment, even though we are believers and we're going to talk about as believers what our posture should be towards final judgment. But we also can look at this as incredible opportunity. I mean, imagine this, what you did today 
has eternal significance. What you did today has eternal significance. I mean, there's not one of us who reads the scriptures that can, can wake up in the morning and say, I have nothing to do today. I have no purpose today. There's no reason for me to get out of bed. No, every day, no matter who you are, no matter what skills you have, no matter what education you have, no matter what physical ability you have, no matter what, you know, anything you have, every day that the Lord has given us is an opportunity to do something for him that has the potential to receive eternal reward. Final judgment, obviously for the unbeliever, is one of the most intimidating, fear-inspiring New Testament doctrines. But for the believer, there is a component of final judgment that should just get us so excited. Because as ordinary, as boring, as insignificant as any day seems, actually, it's incredibly significant. Because every day is an opportunity for us to do something for the Lord that has the potential to carry with it eternal reward. So look again now at that latter part of first, 2 Corinthians 5.10. That will be due, we will receive what is due for the things done while in the body. And again, that last phrase that we've already talked about, whether good or bad. So yes, there should be an element of like, oh, I don't want to just waste my life and then on final judgment, you know, be punished for my bad behavior, my laziness, my distractedness. But there also should be like an incredible, exciting motivation. Wow. You know, when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ on that day of final judgment, if I've done everything I can to live my life for him, I'm going to carry that with me into eternity. Okay. So just some key points from this. Everyone is judged. We will all be judged standing before the judgment seat of Christ. Everyone will be given a recompense, will be given what is just, what is due them for what we have done in the body, whether good or bad. Okay? So let me just pause there to see if there's any comments or questions about this opening verse of our discussion on final judgment. Dave, I can't make out what number four is. You, body. you have the first oh, the body? Yeah, okay. things that we do in the body, which was basically just Paul's way of saying, you know, things that we do in this life. And then what are the little hoogies next to it? The little what? The hoogies. I mean, the little words next to it. I just put down this life. Yeah, and okay okay right below it says romans or something where the arrows are Ro pointing to romans 14 reward and punishment okay that's thank what you okay this english word recompense okay means what you deserve yeah it doesn't have like only a good connotation or only a bad it's both you can okay. be recompensed meaning you'd be rewarded for doing the right thing. You can yeah. recompense, meaning you're punished for doing the wrong thing. Does that, does that help clear that up? Yeah, I mean, I just couldn't read it. I, I just, oh, oh, yeah, okay, I'm sorry. And, yeah, and then, yeah. is that Matthew? Punishment. 
uh, Matthew 27 and uh, John 19? Yep. That's, okay. that's the reference to Pilate okay. on his judgment seat okay. and, of course, the farcical trial of Jesus. So just an example of how this word was used in some other New Testament passages. So, okay. But does that help clear up what, what you're looking at on the, the screen here? Yes, thank you very much. So it's everyone, judgment seat, recompense, and body. And then the fifth is good or bad. Okay, thank Five you. Five is up here because we ran out of space. Okay. Carl didn't get me a big board yet. Okay, thank you. It's always Carl's fault. It You're is. Welcome, Laura. The no gooder. Any other comments or questions about this opening verse? Yeah, Ted. I had a comment. Um, since it's fresh in our minds, uh, in addition to the judgment seat, we've been reading about another seat in Exodus, which is the mercy seat. And I was thinking about how the two balance out uh, two characteristics of God, God's mercy and his judgment. So there's the judgment seat and the mercy seat. And I think Jesus is seated on the judgment seat. I think there's a sense, even though he's not mentioned in Exodus, that Jesus is also seated on the mercy seat. And uh, he's the one who dispenses not only judgment, but also mercy. And I was thinking about uh, the, the fact that the Pharisees didn't really know they were doing a good thing, but they rightly brought to Jesus the woman taken in adultery. So, well, Moses said this, what do you say? And that's a, an important question. What does Jesus say? And I think Jesus was sit, sort of simultaneously sitting on both seats because he said to her sitting on the judgment seat, go and sin no more. But on the mercy side, he was sitting on the mercy seat and saying, uh, I'm not, I don't condemn you. I'm not going to condemn you. I don't have, there's no stone in my hand. So Jesus sits on the judgment seat. I think in a sense, he also sits on the mercy seat, which we've been reading about recently in Exodus. Yeah. And of course, obviously the most incredible display of that absolute harmony is the cross. You know, the perfect expression of the justice and judgment of God, absolutely united with the perfect expression of the mercy and compassion of God. Yeah. And again, you know, just in generally talking about the attributes of God, you know, we will never be able to fully at any given moment comprehend all of the attributes of God. And of course, initially, as we look at the attributes of God, it may seem like some of them are intention. You know, how can God be furiously angry and full of love at the same time? How can God be, you know, holy and just and incredibly compassionate? And, and again, you know, all, all, all I would say in response to that is, you know, God is, is infinitely big. And there's just no way that we as such small, finite humans can ever fully comprehend the entirety of God as he is at every moment of his existence. And so what we do is, and what scripture actually does, is sort of like break him down into smaller, more manageable sort of like bite-sized portions, not meaning any disrespect to the Lord. So, you know, that's why we spend a lot of time talking about the mercy of God. And then we spend a lot of time talking about the holiness of God. And then we spend a lot of time talking about the righteousness of God. We spend time talking about the anger of God and the forgiveness of God. Well, you know, it's very hard for us to even just fully comprehend one of his attributes. But then when we like take a step back and say, well, God is all of these things all of the time, and none of them are like self-contradictory, then you're just like, wow, you know, that's, that's when 
trying to understand God just completely blows us away. Um, there's a phrase that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 3 at the end of the chapter where he says, you know, I want you to know the unknowable love of God. And he's basically saying, you know, there's this incredible, you know, eternal task that we have in front of us, which is to try to fully comprehend that's which, that which can never be fully comprehended, which is the love of God. And again, that's not contradictory. It's just a reminder that no matter how much of God we understand, there's infinitely more of him we have yet to understand. No matter how much we appreciate the love of God, there's an infinite more amount of appreciation that's available to us. That's just the glory of God, the glory of God. So as Ted was kind of, you know, putting together judgment and mercy, you know, that's, that's just the character of God. That's two of his attributes as he puts them on display in scripture. But God is always everything that he is all of the time. That's part of the, you know, the glory of who God is. So, but any other questions about this opening verse before we jump down to the, to the next one on the sheet there? So the second point that we're going to make here is something that we referred to before, which is the general resurrection. Would someone be willing to read for for us, John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, while I erase this. John chapter 5, verses 28 to 29, if someone is willing to grab the microphone, or someone on Zoom, if someone on Zoom wants to read that for us. Thank you, Abelia. Do not be amazed at the Do not be amazed at this. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice. And 29, and come out those who have done good will rise to live or life and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned thank you abelia so we looked at this passage earlier when we were talking about bodily resurrection because here is one of these places where jesus is clearly indicating that everyone is going to receive a new body he says do not be amazed at what he had just said previously, which we're not going to look at right now. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. So basically what Jesus is saying here is that there is going to be a moment in the future where everyone is resurrected. Now, normally we think of resurrection in very positive terms. We think first and foremost, of course, of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we think of 
our bodily resurrection and followers of Jesus Christ, that glorious new eternal resurrection body that we will receive that will never get old, will never get hurt, will never get sick. That's glorious. But remember, when we were talking about bodily resurrection, we saw that the Bible clearly teaches that everyone is resurrected. Everyone will have an eternal body. And so that's what Jesus is talking about here in John 5, 28, in the beginning of verse 29. When everyone who is in the grave will hear the voice of the Son of Man and come out. But again, now we have this component of judgment and recompense. Jesus doesn't actually use the word final judgment, but he does use the word judgment at the end of verse 29. He says, those who have done good will rise to live or actually to have eternal life um, or resurrection life. So those who have done good will actually have resurrection life is a more sort of literal translation of it. And then for those who have done evil or have done wickedly, depending on your translation, they rise to a resurrection of judgment is the phrase that's used there. I think you said, your translation said condemnation. Is that right? Yeah, so the same idea. But again, without necessarily using the word judgment, Jesus is clearly indicating that after what we are going to call the general resurrection. So that is general resurrection as in the resurrection of everyone not just believers or followers of Christ, because that's clearly what Jesus is indicating here. There is a general resurrection where all of the dead hear the voice of the Son of Man and come out of the graves. Those who have done good, they are raised to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil, they are raised to the resurrection of judgment. So one of the things that we are seeing now is that final judgment comes after the general resurrection. So at some point in the future, everyone is raised, everyone is given a body, and then comes the reward or punishment based on, again, what is done. So we see here that Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.10 was echoing the teaching of Jesus. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul said, everything that you have done in this body. Well, here it's now those who have done good, those who have done evil. But as we're kind of thinking of things in the future, there will be a general resurrection, and then there will be final judgment where having done good is rewarded and having done evil is punished. Okay? Any thoughts or questions about this second passage of Scripture, John 5, 28 to 29? Okay, then let's look at the next concept. The concept, oh, is there a Zoom question? Okay, then number three on the sheet, the...
Dave, I have a question. Yeah, please. Carl was um, asleep at the switch. Sorry. Come on, Carl. You trying to get even with me? Oh, okay. <laughs> um, my what popped up in my head was you say we're all resurrected, and you know those who know the Lord knows that don't. So, what type of body would those that don't know the Lord have? Since the bodies that we get are eternal, it doesn't make any mention of what happens to those who don't know the Lord. I don't know what you're Sorry, Flora, I totally missed the end of your question, but all that we are told is that they will receive a physical body and that that physical body will be a resurrection of judgment. Now, what, what, what we are to take from that, I think, because the scripture doesn't give us a lot of great detail in that, is that remember, when you die physically, you are separated from your physical body. The righteous dead, right. those who die in Christ, when they are separated from their physical body, they go to the presence of the Lord, where they receive comfort in the presence of the Lord. The wicked dead, when they die, those who have rejected Christ, they are separated from their physical body. And they go to a place that the New Testament refers to as Hades. Remember, we talked about this. We called this the intermediate state. But we spent some time a couple months ago talking about the intermediate state. What the New Testament makes clear is that the wicked dead, those who reject Christ when they die and are separated from their physical bodies, they go to a place of, of torment and anguish awaiting final judgment. But before they stand before Christ, before they stand for final judgment, they receive a physical body. So I think, Flora, all that I would be comfortable saying the New Testament teaches us is that the wicked dead, the unbelieving dead, do not spend eternity as a disembodied spirit or soul. They spend all eternity with a physical body, just like believers will spend all eternity with a physical body. Now, the nature of that body, the scriptures don't give us any significant detail other than that they receive that body at the general resurrection okay it's a body as far as we can tell it's a body that will last for all eternity so it's just simply i think the point that the scriptures are trying to make here is that the eternal punishment of the wicked is not something that they experience simply as a spirit or a soul. They experience it with a physical body. Right now, the wicked, unbelieving dead who have died physically have been separated from their natural bodies. They are in this place referred to in the New Testament as Hades, a place of temporary punishment awaiting final judgment. So before final judgment, and before their final judgment, they actually receive a physical body. And then in that physical body, they experience eternal judgment. So going into details about what that body is like, I don't know of any passage of scripture that, that goes into that level of detail. You know, we may think of 1 Corinthians 15, where the apostle Paul talks about 
you know, the perishable becoming imperishable, the corruptible becoming incorruptible, but certainly he has in mind the resurrection of believers. Now, would that be similar to how we should understand the resurrection body of unbelievers? I, I don't know. But I think, again, the point that is being made here is that every unbeliever who has died right now has separated from their physical body. They will receive a physical body, then they will experience final judgment, and then they will go into the lake of fire, which is the place of eternal punishment. Okay. Does that kind of help to answer that? Okay. Yes, yes um, another question or comment. So Dave, I'm I'm sorry to make you belabor the point. So I was, can you just tell me which scripture we're speaking of that says they actually receive a body? Because I see everybody rising. I just don't see any mention of bodies. Yeah, I think again, what Jesus is saying here is that coming out of the grave is implying coming out to receive a body. Yeah, I mean, it certainly is not explicitly saying and they receive a resurrection body. But, you know, I, I again, everything that I have read about this is when he's talking about people coming out of the grave, you know, the grave is where the body went. So he's not just talking about like a soul coming out of Hades or a soul in the presence of Christ coming down from heaven. The language that he's using there where he talks about, you know, them coming out of the grave, that's what seems to indicate strongly that he's talking about a body. Because the idea of grave is the place where a body is put. So if someone is coming out of the grave, what seems to be clearly implied, although I, I appreciate you saying it, Camille, he doesn't explicitly say bodily resurrection here. But what is, to me at least, almost completely beyond any reasonable doubt uh, implied here is that it's bodies that, that are coming out of the grave. Right, but that I think is primarily Paul talking about believers. I think he's emphasizing what we receive at the return of Jesus Christ. You know, when we looked at the return of Jesus Christ and when we talked about this, the first Thessalonians 4 passage and the first Corinthians 15 passage, there Paul is almost, I think, exclusively talking about what happens to believers. So the dead in Christ, it says, you know, they rise first. So they receive their resurrection bodies first, and then those who are alive to meet the Lord in the air from 1 Corinthians 15 in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, you know, we are changed. But you know, Camille, the, the Old Testament places Matthew, or Matthew is Daniel 12. I don't know if Daniel 12 is any more explicit about resurrection body, but Daniel chapter 12, uh, beginning at verse 1, it says, at that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will rise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of the nation until the end. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. And then verse 2, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And again, what most commentators that I've read would argue there is because it's the idea of those sleeping in the dust coming to life, it's an emphasis on the physical component 
of humanity. And so this is actually an Old Testament reference to the general resurrection. So in, in Daniel 12, 2, I would say this concept of those sleeping in the dust is like what Jesus is saying, those coming out of the grave. It's language that is explicitly referencing, you know, where does the body go? What happens to the body? It's not looking at the immaterial component of humanity because that is not mentioned explicitly in the Daniel passage or in Jesus's words in John. So that's, I think, Camille, what I would say to me at least indicates that Jesus is talking here about bodily resurrection, what is happening to the body. But, but any follow-up from that, Camille? Um, no, I mean, it, I don't know. I, I guess, obviously, I'm, I'm not looking at the original language and I don't know it. Um, I, I wonder how much of that is, is based on our Like sometimes I feel like we're we're so unfamiliar with the spiritual realm that we feel like we have to anchor it in the natural. And I understand that, you know, God created both. It's just, if it's not saying that, I'm not really sure why we even have to assume it's a physical grave. Though, you know, if the language is saying that, I, I guess I get it. Um, I, I just don't, I don't understand the need for it, but like the, necess the necessity of it. But um, I get what you're saying, like, uh, and obviously, again, I'm not, I'm not looking at the language, so. Well, uh, to me, what you're looking at in English, you're, you're not missing anything. I mean, the Greek word that's used there is, is the word for grave. You know, in the Daniel passage, the, the Hebrew word that's the used for dust is, you know, dust or the ground. Um, and, I, and I would say, Camille, the only reason why we're really pressing this is because we want to understand the scriptures. You know, I, I think you know, the reason why we're pressing these verses is because we want to know what does Jesus mean here? You know, and I, and I think the question you're raising, which is, is, is a great question. Does he mean bodily resurrection? Is that what he means? You know, when he uses the word grave, does he mean that place where a dead body is placed? And when he talks about coming out from the grave, does he mean the resurrection bodies that all humanity receives? Now, to me, yeah, I, I'm, I'm pretty convinced. But no, I don't think what you're doing is, is inappropriate at all. I think it's absolutely what we should be doing. And I, to me, I would say, you know, the reason why I want to press it is because I want to know what Jesus means. And if he doesn't mean bodily resurrection, then I certainly want to understand what he means here. But again, as I have studied this passage and read commentaries on it, not that that's, you know, the slam dunk, but most would argue that because he's talking about the grave, he's talking about the place where the body goes. And so what he's talking about is physical bodies coming out of the grave. So, but no, I mean, what you're doing, Camille, is I think what all of us should be doing, which is studying the scriptures and doing everything we can to rightly understand the scriptures. I mean, gosh, I think all of us, you know, here and on Zoom tonight want to know well, what did Jesus mean in John 5, 28 to 29? I mean, of course we want to know. So no, I think the, the, the issue you're raising is an excellent one, definitely. But as I read it, I think it would be hard to understand this as anything else. Now, you may disagree with me and, that, and that's fine. But as I read this, I think again, because it's connecting to, to Daniel 12, the one that we read, Daniel 12, it's actually one to three in the full context. 
And again, I think what's so groundbreaking in Daniel 12 is that it seems to be talking about physical resurrection because it's talking about those who are sleeping in the dust, coming up out of the dust. But again, it, it may be metaphorical, absolutely. The grave here may be metaphorical, absolutely. I don't think that's the best way to understand these passages because I think the scriptures teach that there is a general resurrection of everybody. Um, but yeah, that, that, that's what we're talking about tonight. So thank you for you know, bringing that up, Camille, absolutely. But any other, any other thoughts or questions about this? Um, although they do good, um... The Lord said they will be receiving a body, but the, the, the body one that don't that do evil, I would never think in, about there was be a body receiving for the judgment. I get lost there because uh, when I see the example of Lazarus and the rich man, uh, the explanation of that verse there, uh, he was already in the, in the lake of fire and, or, and judgment. He was in he was in Hades. In Hades. Yeah, the passage that that you're referring to, we looked at. It's Luke. I believe it's Luke 16. Um, maybe someone can look that up. I may have trouble finding it. Uh, it's Luke 16. It's the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Um, yeah, it's Luke 16. And it explicitly says that the rich man goes to Hades. And so again, when we, we start talking about eternal punishment, all of this is connected. What we are going to do is, is argue that the New Testament makes a distinction between the temporary place where the wicked dead are punished, awaiting final judgment, and the eternal place where the wicked dead are punished. Now, absolutely in the parable, and it is a parable, in the parable, when the rich man has died, he has been separated from his physical body. That's what natural death is. It's the immaterial being of a person being separated from their physical body. And so in Hades, he is being tormented, but not in a physical body. But in Revelation 20, which we'll get to later, it actually says that Hades is thrown into the lake of fire. And so that's what seems to indicate that this is a temporary place of punishment where the wicked dead await final judgment. Does that help to, but please, if you were going to say more, please do. But that, I just wanted to make that distinction before you said more, because we're going to talk about it more in a little later. But I believe there is a distinction between what the New Testament calls Hades and then what is usually translated as hell. At some point, we're going to talk a little bit more about the New Testament concept of hell. But please continue. For I just wanted to say that. Uh, no, probably not, because uh, uh, um, in some way, I would never think in the, that there will be a received body for, the, for those that do uh, evil. And uh, you know, but God is God, and He knows all the details. But uh, yeah, I was thinking in my mind how that's going to be worked. But yeah, yeah. Because they believe in the Lord, it makes a sense completely. But for those they're going to be a uh, judgment and condemn, yeah, it's, it's a little different that I I'm thinking. Yeah, but yeah, I don't want to be. No, no I, and again, like Camille was bringing up, I don't I don't want anyone to believe anything. Because 
because I say it. I mean, that's the worst reason to believe it. You know, what, what hopefully all of us are doing is we're searching the scriptures and we're, we're asking the Lord, Lord, is this really what the scriptures say? But, but again, just going back to the John passage, you know, what, what is this resurrection? I mean, again, to me, that, that also indicates something to do with a body. I mean, it's possible it doesn't, but, but if you put the idea of, of folks that are in a grave, a place where you put a dead body coming out, and then there is a resurrection. And, and the thing is, it's exactly the same word. The, the people who have done good, it is a resurrection, but it's a resurrection of life. The people who have done evil, it's a resurrection. Again, we're not used to saying that. I mean, at least I'm not. We don't normally talk about the resurrection of the wicked dead, but that's exactly the word that Jesus uses here. And so to me, what he's talking about is that the dead are going to come out of the grave, both the wicked and the righteous. The dead are both going to be resurrected. One experience a resurrection of life. The other group is going to experience a resurrection of judgment, but it is a resurrection. It is something that happens in the future. It's not what's taking place right now. What you were talking about is what's taking place right now. The wicked dead are going to this place of temporary punishment, which the New Testament usually refers to as Hades. That's what's going on right now. But there's something in the future that I believe is final judgment. And that final judgment, I believe, comes after the general resurrection. The wicked dead come out of the grave. Those who have done evil, they come out of their grave, and they experience resurrection. But it's not a resurrection of life. It's a resurrection of judgment, or as Abelio's translation said, you could also say a resurrection of condemnation. But I agree with you, Ephraim. I don't think this is something that we think a lot about, because again, I don't think it's something the New Testament talks a lot about. I think the primary focus of the New Testament when talking about resurrection is the resurrection of Jesus Christ first and foremost, and is then the resurrection of believers. That, that to me, is much more clearly the emphasis of the New Testament. But as I read this passage and as I read Daniel, I, 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 to me, it's speaking of bodily resurrection of all humanity. I just, I, I don't see it any other way. I haven't read. And not that I've read a lot, but I haven't read any evangelical commentaries on, on either of those passages that take it any differently. This is, generally speaking, I don't think this is a super controversial point. I think most evangelicals accept the fact that all humanity is resurrected, a bodily resurrection. Now, that may be wrong. I mean, I'm not saying it's 100%. I haven't read anything where there's a sharp disagreement, where there's, you know, someone who's saying, no, that's not what is indicated here. That's not what's indicated in Daniel. But again, Ephraim, I think you're right in saying, I don't think it's something we think a lot about. But since we're talking about final judgment, it is something now that's coming on to, you know, our, our biblical study. Um, but yeah, no, thank you for bringing that up. But it's Luke 16. And again, it's specifically, you know, Lazarus goes to the bosom of Abraham, which is a phrase that's only used there. Uh, it's the place of comfort. Father Abraham is, you know, speaking, and the rich man goes to Hades, which is a place of torment. And it certainly is similar to the lake of fire because he wants, you know, Lazarus to dip his finger in some water and put it on his tongue. But the type of torment that is going on, the type of punishment that's taking place in Hades, I don't think the New Testament ever explicitly tells us. 
But because in Revelation 20, Hades is thrown into the lake of fire, it clearly is a temporary place. It's not a permanent, eternal place. If that makes sense. Yeah. And there's a couple other places. We'll get to it when we get to the second sheet. There's a couple other places where the New Testament, the word Hades is used 10 times in the New Testament. And we looked at it a bit when we were talking about the intermediate state, talking about Sheol. But, you know, and that's the thing, you know, there's an order on this sheet, but this is not like this is like, you know, the divinely inspired order and all of these themes kind of connect together. So, but any other, any other questions or comments about this, this concept of the general resurrection and the resurrection of all humanity before we move on to the next one? Nope. Camille, we're okay moving on because I don't want to, I don't want to cut you short, Camille. No, no, we're fine. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, thank you. And, and again, Camille, I, I love the question because you know, all of us who've read the scripture for a long time, we do run the danger of just kind of reading what we already know into a passage. And in some ways, that's great, because partly what that means is that God has transformed us through the scripture. And there's just certain things that we know because we've spent decades reading the scripture. So praise God, you know, that when we read John 3.16, you know, we really do read a lot of what is true theology into John 3.16. But, you know, the point that Camille is making, which is an excellent one, is, you know, when you're doing a careful study of scripture, you want to absolutely make sure you're not just reading, you know, your understanding into a passage. You want to look at it absolutely carefully. So the question that Camille was raising was excellent. Is Jesus really talking about the bodily resurrection of all humanity in John 5, 28 and 29? Or are we just saying he's saying that because that's what we've been taught to believe? So the question that Camille is raising is an excellent one. Because we should, as God gives us opportunity, pause and really look at words and phrases and sentences and say, okay, is this really saying what I think it says? Or am I just kind of reading a preconceived idea into it? You know, even what Ephraim was saying, absolutely the same thing. You know, I've never really thought about unbelievers receiving a body. Is that really what the scripture says? Well, that's, that's what we're doing. We're looking at that. So all of these questions are, are excellent. And again, just, you know, for my two cents, whatever it's worth, I do believe that those passages pretty clearly indicate the general resurrection of all humanity. Now, it's not as absolutely certain as Jesus being the son of God, as Jesus rising on the third day. But I, I, I think the scriptures do teach that there is a resurrection of all humanity before the final judgment okay but no absolutely we want to pause and say is that really what that verse says so thank you camille and thank you for Ephraim. and don't feel like you're beating a dead horse or belaboring a point because this is this is why we're here we're here to look at the scriptures together we're here to look at the scriptures carefully and then with the hope hopeful help of the holy spirit decided is this what the bible is saying because that's that's what we want we want to say what the scriptures are saying you know, what Calvin used to say is where the scripture stops speaking, I stop speaking. You know, John Calvin was so determined, not that he was perfect in his theology, but his heart's desire was only to speak what the scriptures speak. So he says, when the scripture stops speaking, I stop speaking. That, that was Calvin. And that, I think, to some extent resonates with most of us, is we want to say what the scriptures are saying. 
We don't want to have, you know, Dave's theology or Howard's theology or Seema's theology. We want to have Jesus's theology. So all of these comments, all of these questions, Ephraim and Camille, thank you for that. That's what we want to be doing together. Absolutely. So yeah, please. Until Ephraim and uh, Camille actually said these things, I never gave it much thought. But now because they're, you know, pushing that point, it makes me think of uh, the torment that is coming to those who are in the lake of fire and if you're just spirit you how could fire torment air so there must be a body i'm just thinking from a biological perspective if this torment from the fire if there is an unquenchable thirst or if there's a worm that doesn't die it's not going to be doing it to the air it's going to be doing it to so i'm just i would have never thought of it but because they were bringing it up i just thought well the scripture does say that, but who knows what that means. Yeah, and the only thing I would say to that is obviously the wicked dead are in torment right now in Hades without a physical body. Now, what the nature of that torment is, I don't know. And, you know, we will get into the metaphors that are used to describe punishment. Um, well, we're, we're going to get into eternal punishment. But yeah, I mean, but these are the things we want to be thinking of. I mean, we hopefully, I mean, gosh, you know, I, I love this because this is what the Lord loves. The Lord loves when his people are trying to better understand him, are trying to better understand his word, are trying to say, is this really what the scripture says? And if that's the case, then what about this? You know what Simon was just saying? Well, if that's the case, then what about this? This is exactly what the Lord wants us to do. I mean, it's fine to watch Netflix. It's fine to watch Hulu, it's fine to relax and unwind. There's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, the Lord also has something far more amazing for us, which is to dive into his word. And, and again, you know, I, I appreciate what Camille was saying about, you know, not studying in the original languages. Don't even for a second let that limit you. Because, you know, the, the Bible translators who have given you the Bible in English and in Spanish you know, for the most part, they have done a phenomenal job. And don't ever, ever, ever for a second think, oh, I need to know Hebrew or I need to know Greek to really understand the scriptures. No, you do not. You do not. I think those things are beneficial and I think those things can be helpful. I mean, I hope so, because if not, I've wasted a lot of time trying to learn these languages that I'm still terrible at. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But don't even for a second think that, you know, if you're reading the Bible in Spanish and it's a good translation, or you're reading the Bible in English and it's a good translation, that in any way you are limited or seeing less because you're not reading it, it's in original languages. I mean, again, there's so many things that God has given us and we should avail ourselves of as many of them as we can. But, you know, I, I appreciate you saying that, Camille, but I don't want any of you here on Zoom to think for a second that if you're reading a solid English translation, if you're reading a solid Spanish translation, I mean, it is. It is the word of God. It is. And it absolutely has the power to transform us. In Spanish, in English, in Berber, in Swahili, in Chinese, I mean, it has the power to transform us. So don't even for a second. I mean, if you can do some language study, that's great. You know, if you can look up some of the original language issues, that's great. But don't, don't even for a second think if you can't or you don't, or you don't have a desire to, which is totally fine, 
that it limits your ability to completely and rightly understand the word of God. Okay. I don't know why that's breaking me up so much, but anyhow. I've got a question. Sure. You said, uh, so Jesus continues to experience life bodily after the resurrection, like the life. Human life is experienced in a body. That's, that's what I believe. I, 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 again, the phrase that's used is the general resurrection. And that means all of humanity receives a body. And what I believe is they, the general resurrection happens before the final judgment. Okay. Oh, so Eric was, well, Eric had a, a chat question. So he's saying all, all humanity experiences eternity in a body question mark. Yeah. So, so humans continue to experience life bodily after the resurrection. So humans continue to experience life bodily after the resurrection. I think, Eric, the answer is yes. I think the answer is yes. Both saved humanity and unsaved humanity. But, but, but you guys, I mean, look at John 5, 20 and 29 more. Look at Daniel 12, 1 and 2. I mean, don't, again, don't believe it because I'm saying it. You know, let the scriptures themselves speak and convince you. I think the language there is convincing talking about a grave, talking about a resurrection, talking about in Daniel, those who sleep in the dust. But yeah, study the scriptures. Be a Berean. Study the scriptures for yourself. Okay? All right, so point number three, the concept of the end of the age. The end of the age. Now remember, when we were talking about the already not yet, we talked about the end of the ages. And I, I really hate to make a big distinction by one letter, but the end of the ages is the entire era in which we are living now. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 is an example of this. We are those upon whom the end of the ages has come. So there is this concept of the final period of human history is now because Christ has come. And so many of the incredible blessings of the coming age, of the future age, have been pulled back into this age and given to us now. So we have eternal life now. We have abundant life now. We have forgiveness of sins now. We have victory over sin now. We have those things now why because jesus came a first time and he brought with him this new era that is sometimes referred to as the end of the ages the beginning of the fulfillment of all the old testament prophecy but there also is a reference that the new testament makes to the, end of the age singular and that is exactly what it sounds when this age that we're living in the New Testament age, the age of the spirit, the church age, different names that we give to it. This age will come to an end. And the New Testament speaks about that. That is the end of the age. Okay. Now, we're going to see again a connection between the end of the age and final judgment. So I've given you initially a longer passage, Matthew 13. 36 to 43. This is actually where Jesus is explaining 
the parable of the weeds and the wheat. So you've got to go back a little earlier in Matthew 13 to get the parable of the weeds and the wheat. We're not going to read that. Then this is his fairly detailed explanation of the parable of the weeds and the wheat. But what I want us to focus on is just two verses there. Two verses, and those two verses are verses 39 and 40. But again, just to set it in context, Jesus has told a parable about weeds and wheat. Then now later he is explaining this parable so that his disciples can understand it. But we're going to be looking specifically at two verses in that explanation, verses 39 and 40. Okay? And we won't take the time to read the parable, and we won't take the time to read the entire interpretation of the parable but let me just pick it up here and, and it says and the enemy who sows them is the devil the harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are the angels so jesus here is saying that the harvest in this parable so remember the weeds and the wheat are growing up together but then eventually all of them are harvested together jesus is saying that harvest where both the weeds and the wheat are harvested together it is the end of the age. That's the significance of the harvest in this parable. Then verse 40. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so will it be at the end of the age. So again, being burned in fire seems to be speaking of that eternal punishment that lies on the other side of final judgment. So the only reason I'm including these verses here is, again, what Jesus seems to be indicating is that at the end of the age is when final judgment takes place. So at the end of the age, there is a general resurrection of all humanity. At the end of the age, there is final judgment. These are things that I believe the New Testament is connecting to this concept of final judgment. Remember the first passage we looked at. All of us must stand. All of us must, uh, must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the last one, just because I want to make sure we get to this tonight. So if there's a question about this, hold on to it for one second. But number four on the sheet, the coming of the Son of Man in glory. So the return of Jesus. And again, we find a parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 25. But again, this is being included here because it seems to be connecting the return of Jesus Christ with final judgment. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. Now, again, here, instead of using the word judgment seat, the word bima, Jesus uses the word throne. And we see that that is also a, a picture of Christ sitting in judgment over all humanity. In Revelation chapter 20, John sees a great white throne. Okay? So we see there is some diversity in terms of how it is described, but it certainly seems to be talking about the same thing. 
So when the Son of Man comes in his glory, this is the return of Jesus Christ, the second coming, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All nations will be gathered before him. So again, this concept that all humanity stands before Christ in final judgment. So when the Son of Man comes, he will sit on his throne in glory, and all of the nations will be gathered to him, before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And for now, we're not going to read the rest of this parable. But what is being indicated here by Jesus is judgment. The sheep are rewarded for what they did in this life. And the goats are punished for what they did in this life. So here again, we have another concept that's closely associated with final judgment. And that is the return of Jesus. Okay, these first four passages of scripture that we've looked at, to me, what I just want to kind of establish with these are some of the most central aspects of understanding from a big picture, final judgment. All humanity must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This comes after the general resurrection of all humanity, which takes place at the end of the age. And what has inaugurated the end of the age is the return of Jesus Christ. Again, the way I understand this is this all takes place relatively at the same time. Going back now to the millennium, the premillennials, who are the pre-trib premillennials or the dispensational premillennials, they believe that there are multiple judgments. They believe that the judgment described in Matthew 25 is not final judgment. They believe that's the judgment that begins the millennium. They believe the great white throne judgment is a separate judgment, the, the judgment of Revelation chapter 20. I think at the end, they actually have three or four different judgments. We're not going to go into trying to figure out how do the, the, the dispensational premillennials come up with all that because we got, I got so confused just trying to understand how they see the millennium. But the approach that I'm taking to scripture sees all of these events closely connected. Now, in terms of time, does this take an hour? Does this take a day? Does this take a week? I, I, that I'm not going to try to say. I mean, there's a phrase that's referred to as the day of judgment, but it's not to be thought of as a literal 24-hour day. Remember, when we were looking at the Old Testament, we talked about the day of the Lord, which is the day when, when the Lord shows up and everyone sees it. It's not to be taken as a literal day. But I think what I would say these four passages in conjunction along with others indicate is that, that Jesus comes, that is the end of this age. When Jesus comes, the return of Jesus Christ brings about the end of this age. And with that comes him calling and all of the dead in the graves coming out. And then comes final judgment. The evaluation of all humanity based on what you've done in this life. Okay? Does that, does that much make sense? The return of Christ, bringing about the end of the age, 
the general resurrection of all folks, believers and unbelievers, and then the judgment of all humanity. That's what I believe the scriptures clearly teach will unfold, okay? But again, we have a couple minutes. Any, any comments or questions about any of that? Clear as mud? All right. Well, we're not going to try to press on here, but you have the sheets now in front of you. Feel free to read ahead. Feel free to look at these passages. Again, there's kind of a logical order to them, but it's the logic in my mind, so it may not make any sense to you. That's totally fine, because it certainly is not like the, the, the order of the books of the Bible or anything like that. But we're going to start to unpack the concept of final judgment a little bit more. You know, what is judged? What is the standard of judgment? And what is the distinction between believer and unbeliever? How is it that we as believers should be thinking about standing before Christ in final judgment? Another really good thing to be considering. You know, the gospel is by grace alone. You are saved by grace. Why is there so much talk about what you have done? Those who have done good, those who have done bad. I mean, it seems like it's a pretty serious evaluation of what you do. So how does grace fit into that? Why is the, the language that we've looked at in these four passages when it's mentioned it, talking about what you're doing? I thought I'm saved by grace. You know, am I going to be punished for the sins I have committed? I thought I was forgiven. You know, how do, so these are some things that we've got to start to unpack when we get together in a couple of weeks. And of course, there's a lot more passages than the ones that are on the sheet. These are just the ones that, you know, were, were helpful to me. And, and like I say, the order is helpful to me. But let me close this out with a word of prayer. And thank you guys so much for being here tonight. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to be together as your people, as sisters and brothers in Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to, to consider your word. And Lord, I feel like one of the things you were just strongly putting in front of us uh, maybe is not even directly connected to final judgment, but that just is our desire to really rightly understand the scriptures, not just to, to read into it what we think is right or to read into it even unconsciously what we already believe, but really to always try to come to the scriptures afresh and ask you to speak to us through the scriptures. And Lord, of course, it is our desire that we would really only speak what you have already spoken that our theology would be in line with your theology, because Lord, that's what we want. I mean, that's what we want. So I really just want to thank you, Lord, for the things you stirred in Camille's heart and the, the things you stirred in Ephraim's heart and my wife's heart as well, just to consider what, what is it that your scriptures are saying, because that's what we want, Lord. That's what we want. And so help us, Lord, always to be better students of your word. But particularly, Lord God, as we consider the idea of final judgment, help us, Lord God, to rightly understand it. Help us, Lord God, to, to know what we should expect as believers. And of course, Lord, as we think of eternal punishment, may that inspire us even more to be bold in our evangelism. May it inspire us even more to share with folks who you are and what you have done. We should not just casually dismiss eternal punishment as something that we have been rescued from, but we should consider 
the urgency that you want us to have in sharing Christ with others, that they might be saved from that, even as we have been saved from that. And Lord, whatever else you want to do in us, whatever else you want to work in us as we study your scriptures, just help us always, Lord, to submit to you and to allow you to be Lord. For those who are here in person, just pray for safety as we travel home. And for the folks on Zoom, give them a blessed rest of the evening as well. And we ask all of this, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen. Amen. Well, on the calendar, we are meeting May 17th. Two weeks from tonight is May 17th. We will be here at 7 p.m., Lord willing, and we will continue to consider the theme of final judgment. But thank you all for being here online and in person. The Lord bless you all. Thank you.